0: The biggest lesson I learned is don't underestimate people. One of our projects was this project called Super Tiki. And basically the idea was can we bring kind of like a sneaker net to cyber kiosks in small villages, right? So rural Mali. Like this is like really poor, like really remote places.
1: Uh, Just to clarify, sneaker net being where you had internet that is transported on someone's feet. <laughs> hence,
0: hence the name, Secretnet, right? Yeah, so, so as we were using a USB key. So we set up this, basically this kiosk software that had an RSS newsfeed. We spent all this time building basically like a simple UI for these operators and villagers to access basic news, Wikipedia, things like that. And uh, so we give them the software and then they're like, what is all these nice applications below? Like Explorer, like like Chrome and, and Word. <laughs> and they just wanted like the basic software Like, why did we think that they need this inferior stuff we developed? And they were just totally able to understand with like the small modicum of training the same applications that, you know, everybody uses. So just don't, that was a really dumb mistake. It was a great learning lesson, but we underestimated that they wouldn't be able to be technically literate enough to use that tool. So I guess my point is don't, (laughs) don't build custom UIs for, you know, mobile users. If, If it's good enough for Android and a couple billion users worldwide, it's probably good for anybody you're going to work with. Don't underestimate people.
1: Hi, everyone. You're listening to Aid Evolved, and I'm your host, Rowena Luke. This is a podcast about technology, poverty, and health, and specifically about the people trying to get technology to work better to address poverty and improve healthcare. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with Matt Berg. Now, if you were to meet Matt Berg today, you'd quickly realize he is the founder and CEO of Ona.io. Ona.io is a social enterprise and technology startup making waves in the aid sector right now for its work on data collection, analytics, and health records. But Matt's a pretty quiet guy, and he doesn't really like to talk about himself. So it would probably take you a while to peel back the many layers of the fascinating story of Matt Berg. In the time that we have, we talk about the highlights of his work with Ona, setting up the organization, keeping it on the cutting edge, recruiting talent in Africa. But Matt also does a great job painting a picture of the environment and the history around which all of this emerged. Among other things, we get a peek into what it was like to be a kid growing up in Senegal and ignoring your parents, as kids do. Another example is we talk about the 90s and all of the improbable ideas that we thought might work at that time. For example, sending internet to communities via USB sticks, or the work that Matt did to set up an offline version of Wikipedia, Ultimately, today's conversation is a snapshot of a man who spent his childhood and his adulthood walking the line between Africa and the United States, and how that plays out as we try to build technology for Africa in Africa. The first question I asked Matt was, so, where are you from?
0: I guess there's always a pause from where I'm from. I'm from all over. I was born in Cameroon, in a little village in northern Cameroon. My parents were Lutheran missionaries. And then I spent a little time in the U.S. And then basically most of my childhood was in Dakar and Senegal uh-huh. um, until high school. Uh, then I moved to the to Illinois. Uh, where, so I'm sort of like Illinois. My mom's from Chicago. So I was in, you know, Springfield, Illinois for high school.
1: Oh, man. High school is tough enough to begin with.
0: Yeah. Afro- West Africa and uh, the Midwest, basically. It's kind of where I feel like I'm wow.
1: from. What was it like diving into high school, coming from Senegal as you were? High school is tough. <laughs> uh,
0: no kidding. Yeah, I was really ready for college. Yeah, I just I mean I think high school is tough for anybody, but coming from is just a totally different place and not knowing anybody, you know, that's always a challenge. And that yeah, yeah. yeah, I just was sort of ready for college. <laughs>
1: Do you remember any of your first impressions of the United States when you came to visit or, or your first impressions of school?
0: One of my first impressions was when I like went to like soccer practice and I was running around in tennis shoes because we never played with cleats. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up making the team and was, did well on the team, but they're like, what the heck are you doing, man? You need <laughs> cleats. We're like, what? The things nobody tells you. We also got, to, I mean, I, we moved into our house like two days before practice started. So. Oh, man. Yeah. So just things like that were just a little bit funny. But then, you know, you quickly become pretty American quick, so... <laughs>
1: America does have that effect on you. It really anchors an individual culturally. I, I can also attest to that.
0: Yeah, I mean, i like a teacher. And she's like, if you went to high school in U.S., you're American. If you don't, you're always going to be international, basically. Which I think is a pretty decent yeah. <laughs> kind of assessment.
1: <laughs> that sounds right. And then, Matt, I know you got started in this space of technology and international development. I, I think it's through your time at GeekCore, um, if I'm not wrong. Can you tell me a bit about how it is that you... Entered the space?
0: Sure. So um originally I was a programmer. Um so I did CS in undergrad and I did like the dot-com thing for a while and I, you know, did some things that wasn't terribly proud of, <laughs> you know, making that was the time. Like I literally was making websites for multi-level marketing companies at one point. You know, it's pretty, pretty terrible. A lot of people do that. Uh so like the Amways and stuff. I learned a lot and you know, it had a lot of pizza money in college, <laughs> stuff like that. But yeah, I just was, I wrote that kind of a couple dot .com ups and downs and then was kind of realized it wasn't meaningful. Actually, it was funny when I was in high school, actually growing up, you know, you listen to Bon Jovi and I grew up in Senegal, which is like probably the best music place in the world. Not now that I realized, but I grew up listening to like U2 and Bon Jovi and, you know, NXS and stuff like that. And, you know, did not want to have anything to do with African music. And in high school, my dad's best friends is, Senegalese pastor gave us a, use indoor C D and it kind of like blew my mind that I was like, Oh my god, like it felt like this is I heard all that growing up but I just ignored it. So it kind of it made me realize Wait, wait,
1: wait. So you you didn't hear that at all when you were in Senegal. You discovered that when you were in high
0: school in the United States. I would never listen to Yousou or anybody. Like that. I didn't want to. I was. I didn't want to associate. You know. Oh, kids. I went to internet. You know, it's just. But I. But I heard it all the time. Right. Everywhere I was going it was always in the background. Right. Oh. Like on the. You know, the car yeah, and yeah. You know, it's it's music's everywhere in Senegal, but you just don't. That wasn't what you wanted to associate with.
1: I guess one thing that is universal is that kids will never appreciate the gifts that they are given anywhere in the world.
0: <laughs> yep. Exactly. So I sort of got. It was my connection back to Africa. And I was like, holy cow, like
1: music brought you back.
0: Yeah. So it just connected me back to where I grew up. And then I started just developing kind of a major hacky passion, nerdy passion on African music. So I had like one of the it was it was called Build Africa at the time, but it was it I basically hacked together the Amazon affiliate stuff. And I, I had like the top two or three music websites for African music online. <laughs> uh you know, doing a lot of ad, like a lot of affiliate sales and stuff.
1: I, I have some vague memory of of something that you publish on a regular basis, you would have like Matt's top 10 yeah. lessons or something like that. I forget what service it was too, but I remember following you and getting all this African music from you. Is this, is that what you're talking yeah, about?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I got in like Afropop. Anyway, so my point <laughs> is I, it's sort of like, you know, from high school, then through college and then through working, that was always there. That music was always there. And I was like realizing. Please tell me you're still doing that. I, I'm actually, as, as you get to a certain age, you stop listening to new things for Aww. the most part. <laughs> It's sad, but it's true. I still listen to a lot of African music, but i am not kept up to date. It's a bit of a ramble, but anyway, kept that. You know, you have that thread in your life that kind of, it's almost your conscious, right? Um, and that was like, well, I, I know something's missing here. I, I know that I want to get back to Africa somehow. And it felt like a million miles away because I was just, you know, like once you leave, it's like, how do you get back? How do you get my foot back in the door? Um, hmm. So, I, so I, I basically had the chance to get an MBA at a school called Thunderbird which is a great international business school. And then from there, um, I was like, you know, I was going to job fairs. I'm like, uh, do you have any jobs in Africa? They're like, no. I'm like, okay, this sucks. <laughs> I Yeah, so I was browsing one day and I saw this average, uh, ad for a, a volunteer job actually in Senegal initially with Gikor. And Wayne at the time, Wayne <laughs> Voda was the Core, uh director. Uh, so he messaged me and I had basically an offer to go to Senegal uh, right after grad school within a couple minutes. <laughs> so, so I'm like, that sounds good. So I did that for about yeah, oh, six that, months. And I was creating, uh, it was actually <laughs> really fun. I was creating accounting software for merchants in you know, Sandaga Market. Yeah, so then that turned into the job. Then the, from there, I had the opportunity to become the the director of the Geek Corps in Motley, which was, which was a pretty cool experience. Awesome. Was it uh, a big move for you?
1: You were saying that you were doing the dot-com thing, you know, making money as computer scientists do, you're, you know, brushing shoulders with all these business folks. Was it a hard decision to move into a sector that was going to pay you a lot less, particularly as a volunteer?
0: No, I mean, I, I went to school with, I don't know, I've never been maybe motivated by money, I guess. <laughs> Otherwise I wouldn't work in this space. <laughs> uh, so I, yeah, I was just motivated by how the heck do I get to Africa again? And how do I use my, my fingers, you know, to, to help, I guess, how do I code? you know, how do I use code to help people? Um, <laughs> that was my main motivation, you know? So yeah. And it was the best. Yeah. I think if that's, you know, if you ever want to get into a new space, you know, a great way to do it's volunteering because you're thrust into responsibilities that you would not get with a paying job often. And then that turned into a geek core role where I was the chief of party for USAD and at, you know, at 30 <laughs> or 30, whatever. And, uh, which was, you know, and then after that, it's your career. Maybe I was even earlier, geez, I was in my no, I was in my twenties. Anyway, so it was like young. And after that, then you know, you sort of like you don't have a hard time getting jobs after that. So
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's very young to be a chief of party for sure.
0: That was cool though, because we were doing like that was back in the the infrastructure days of kind of technology for development, which was the access to information, right? So You know, we built the first offline Wikipedia, which is really cool. It still exists. We basically were able to compress all Wikipedia down to like a CD-ROM with like search indexing.
1: CD-ROMs.
0: Yeah. The funny thing there was we actually had a deal from USAD to, I guess this is, I guess we could talk about it now, to publish it uh, and share it all throughout the country. Uh, But there was was one article in Wikipedia about Bush uh, and basically it wasn't very uh, complimentary. So they said that we had to remove that article. We had to remove that article if they would give us the funding. And we say we couldn't do that. So we lost the funding.
1: Oh, wow. Wow. Good to see you for standing by your chops.
0: Yeah, but we had like, a, they were shipping it. Really? Yeah. yeah, totally. So.
1: I'm impressed that you did that. To be honest, I would have, I don't know if I'll regret saying this, but I would have removed the article just to get it out there. That's a, shows a sign, a strong connection to your morals. Yeah.
0: I don't know. But where, where do you, where do you, where do you draw the line though? You know, on that. So I don't know. Maybe it was dumb. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's awesome. And, and I, I have a sense GeekCore had a lot of a lot of different experiments and was opportunity for you and for others to sort of see what does and doesn't work in this space. What's one thing you think that you learned during your time at GeekCore that has come in handy through all your future career in technology for development?
0: Great question. I think the the biggest lesson I learned is like, don't underestimate people. One of our projects was this project called Super Tiggy. And basically the idea was, can we bring kind of like a sneaker net? to cyber kiosks in small villages, right? So rural Mali. Like this is like really poor, like really remote places. Uh,
1: just to clarify, Sneakernet being where you had internet that is transported on someone's feet. <laughs> hence, hence the name Sneakernet, right?
0: Yeah, so, so was, we we're using a USB key, right? So we we're doing things like USB keys internet. We were doing like multi-headed computers, like one desktop with like four or five monitors hooked up in keyboards. With, you can do it with Linux, so we set up this, uh, basically this kiosk software that had an RSS newsfeed. It has a couple of different things. Anyway, we spent all this time building basically like a simple UI for these operators and kind of villagers to access basic news, Wikipedia, things like that. And uh, And we had it on these like nice Linux machines. So we give them the software and then they're like, what is all these nice applications below, like Explorer, like like Chrome and, and Word? <laughs> and they just wanted like the basic software. Like, why did we think that they need this inferior stuff we developed? And they would just totally were able to understand with like the with small modicum of training, the same applications that, you know, everybody uses. So just don't, that was a really dumb mistake. It was a great learning lesson, but we underestimated that they wouldn't be able to be technically literate enough to use that tool. So I guess my point is don't... <laughs> don't build custom uis for you know mobile users if, if it's good enough for android and a couple billion users worldwide it's probably good for anybody you're going to work with don't underestimate people
1: yeah for sure and also you can imagine these communities you're giving them a tiny window into a, a big wide world out there I'm sure there was a lot of intrinsic curiosity you know what is this let me get my hands on this um and then that will push people to get outside of their comfort zone in a in a really neat
0: way. I think the other, the other really cool thing, just one last thing is. So we were working with community radio stations, and one of the great, one of my, you know, the perks of the job was we could back then drive from Timbuktu all the way to Gal, north of the Niger River. So now it's like an area, you just could never go. Such so as a, a white guy like me, actually, any, anybody <laughs> now. But one of the cool <laughs> things we were doing is the community radio, and just basically the importance of. You know, when you're accessing information, having a mediator, having that person that's the channel or the, the bridge uh, to the community that can translate the information. So one of the cool things we did is, you know, internet back then was so expensive. And we had like RBGAN, which is like satellite. It was like 25 bucks for like 20 megabytes or something like that. So we actually developed a, an app that would allow you to do like a weekly RSS feed. We it would called a news of the news. And it would download basically like a couple hundred K of news on a weekly basis. And then that guy would just read it all, like the soccer scores and all that. And that, that was his new show. So it was like, so the ability, the ability to like do that. Or I, I don't know if you remember, Reno, you know, the, the guy that used to be, I think he was in Ghana that used to create those, like, did you ever see the guy that created those message boards where he would like get access to like several cafes and then he'd go and write in chalk on the side of the road. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Like the price of
0: crap <laughs> and all that. So a huge inspiration. That, was that great. Yeah. So a huge inspiration for for me at that time was like, how do we leverage these networks of people and as sort of like, they're like the broadcaster to their communities, you know?
1: Awesome. Awesome. So I think that's still an interesting
0: idea that is still valid, but maybe less so with smartphones now, but yeah, anyway.
1: For sure. And and I can see that even in some of the more recent work that you've done, sort of enabling these local change makers, local developers, uh, to be be the agents of change within their community. Yep, absolutely. Speaking of your more, slightly more recent uh, work, Um, Fast forward a couple of years after that, I know you moved into your work with Columbia University and the Millennium Villages Project. One question I wanted to ask you since we have a podcast is like, I know that was the work for which you were named times 100 most influential people in the world. What's that like?
0: (laughs) It was, I mean, it was very, very, I mean, I would be, it was really honoring. It was amazing that it was cool for my mom, especially, you know, my parents, Um, (laughs) you know, it was obviously a little bit, a little bit, um, a little bit you know, crazy, you know, it's if, if you really want to be sane about it. But I mean, I think it was a reflection. <laughs> she finally understood what you did for work. Yeah, but I mean, a couple of things. Like, you know, one is that, you know, I think it was just a reflection of where we were as a field at the time. So I think they just needed to pick somebody that, you know, kind of represented what we we're trying to do. And I just was the one they picked. But I think it was an honor for our space. You know, that's how I like to look at it, you know.
1: Um, um, what was the award for? Like, what was the kind of work that you are doing with the Millennium Villages Project?
0: What was Millennium Villages project? Yes, I mean, Millennium Villages was this pretty controversial, but, you know, every project is, I guess, uh, attempt by, you know, it was led by Jeff Sachs and the Earth Institute to see if we can develop, you know, kind of like a a modeled approach for development where you combine a bunch of different, you know, sectors. So, you know, if you combine, you know, health is linked to, to nutrition, right? So if you combine ag and health, can you have better health outcomes? Can you give fertilizer to farmers to improve yields? You know, so combining all these things together. Uh, and, you know, package it up. So I don't want to, you know, on the macro level, there's, you know, lots of pros and cons. I think there was an amazing team we had. I think we learned a lot. So I think a lot of the policies that came out of it were really positive. And my role was basically to, initially it was more on infrastructure. So setting up like radio stations, setting up schools with Wi-Fi. We had a lot of deals with connectivity with Ericsson at the time. Huh, people don't talk about that. Yeah, much. but that's that's was my initial job, right? Because it was coming out of infrastructure kind of lab at columbia um but then when the rapid sms stuff if you remember that started coming out um you know i kind of started hanging out with the unicef innovation crew It was like oh this is kind of cool um and that's sort of where i i got into kind of the mobile health space and i my first you went down to the conference in cape town actually was our first introduction to it um so then i was able to start to say hey like this is this is software right so i kind of i like software and, you know, starting to see like, hey, with, with SMS, we can use structured SMSs to register kids, uh, do that. So it was, the honor was basically a work was related to something called Child Count, which was a rapid SMS sort of implementation where we were registering kids in a couple of countries, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. you know, Kenya, Ghana, and other places, Uganda, and then tracking basic nutrition and, you know, health screenings um, through SMS. Right. Um so it's a basic idea of like, yeah, just you know, tracking kids. So kind of like pre-early early, early smartphone where, you know, the SMS was still an option. So that's what it was basically for.
1: Yeah. And I've and there's there's so much literature out there about how being counted, you know, being on the register enables you access to healthcare, to education, to all these core services. Um, so that definitely that was a, a core part of a lot of what the Millennium Villages projects were doing. Looking back on that, you know, 10 years on, again, more I guess maybe even more than 10 years for some of that work. Any any reflections on that experience looking back on it?
0: Well, I mean, it was personally a, a massively formative experience because I got to work 10 plus countries. Um, so that was great. Yeah, yeah. And we got the chance to start to develop software. We got we did a lot of the rapid SMS stuff. We also developed FormHub, which is the first. I think it helped democratize ODK quite a bit. I saw
1: Yao tweeting about that recently.
0: Yeah. One of our engineers came up with this idea of like, hey, I can create a form in Excel. Yeah. And he's like, this it's terrible. Nobody would want to use it. I'm like, actually, I think this is pretty cool. I I can see wanting to use it. And like, I, I kind of hate WYSIWYG builders because it, it hides all your logic. And I can see people work in Excel. And then, you know, I wasn't sure. So then we, we saw Gaetano, we were out in, in Seattle and he's like, this is a good idea, but I don't know if I trust you with the tech. So I'm going to assign one of my grad students to it. <laughs> and then he basically got us over the line to make it like production ready. And then that fed into the Form hub bit. Gaetano was was amazing at um, so many levels. But yeah, so the cool thing there was just how do we get people, you know, empowering people with tools and letting them just solve their own problems is really the key. So for me, that was our first sort of realization that just make stuff accessible. And then you can have a ton of impact, a lot more impact than if you try and do the work yourself.
1: Agreed. One last question on the child's cunt front is: I know with your more recent work, you've it. It looks like you've moved away from SMS interventions. Um, is there a particular reason or strategy behind that?
0: Yeah, I mean, texting is a lot. <laughs> I'd much rather fill out a form. I think, like with the smartphone now, they're they're so cheap, and you can better data entry. You can also provide information back to the healthcare worker. That's really the key thing, right? So for empowering healthcare mm-hmm. workers, it's really about what can you do to make their jobs better. Yeah. And with child count, we had to do, like, we had to, like, print out the reports for that to be really useful, so, like, paper registers. Um, so it took a lot of logistics to do that. So smartphones are just a better way to achieve it. But, I mean, SMS can be successful. Ironically, like, in a kind of full circle, we're actually in the final processes right now of supporting the government of Rwanda to upgrade their rapid SMS system. Um, they've been doing it for the last six or seven years, uh, nationwide, SMS-based system for all their their RMNCH so child and maternal health services over SMS like lots and lots of data and we've just went through the process of upgrading them to Rapid Pro. so that'll be launching in, in March I think so so it's a, so the groups are still using it
1: for sure and I understand that system has very much driven by the government of Rwanda and the capacity to work with the system there's a lot of that there in Rwanda,
0: yeah, I, I think it works in Rwanda for many reasons, and it works. It's a testament to, like, yeah, the the, the the strength of their health system. You know, I don't think it would work in a lot of other places.
1: And then to your other smartphone point as well, you know, I, I think the technology has also naturally evolved a lot in the past couple of years, and so it's just yep. cheaper, easier, more accessible to do a lot of things on smartphones, which we just couldn't do back in 2010. Yep. Um, so there's that aspect as well. Matt, tell me about how you came to Ona. You know, like you were doing your work with Columbia, things were speeding along, and then suddenly you went to Kenya or something? What happened?
0: <laughs> yeah, so, I, I mean, I think the first thing is I I was the co-founder of Avona, so I have three other amazing co-founders, uh, Peter, Roger, and Dixon. Um, so Peter and Roger were in, in New York with me at Columbia Lab we were in, called the Modi Research Group. And Dixon was the first actually Kenyan engineer that I ever hired, and he was kind of working on the rapid SMS, Yeah. Yes, yeah, So actually it was, I originally was at Columbia has a lab, uh, has a center in Nairobi. So I was able to move there through that. Uh, then after about a year working there, d- decided to, to make the leap uh, to start on with my co-founders. Um, so that's what we did.
1: Nice. Yeah. Nice. And it's great that I imagine having Dixon on your team was a, was a huge help just understanding the local environment, figuring out where to get talents, getting incorporated, all that.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was a huge help. And he's, it's, And then, yeah, I mean, like coming down to it, like, you know, running, you know, any, any business, any startup is amazing and really, really challenging. And, you know, like, you know, we've had our ups and downs, but at the end of the day, like the fact that my co-founder, like our relationship with my co-founders now are as strong as ever. And like, it's otherwise it would never would have happened. So it's been amazing. Feel incredibly lucky to be, you know, have such great people to work with.
1: Yeah. And those first couple of years, really, they really make or break an organization. Can you give us a, a window into one of those moments where like you weren't sure if Ono was going to make it? Yeah,
0: I think it's it's not so much if we weren't sure we could like keep money coming in or whatever. It's just more about like are we making the right choices in terms of, you know, our strategy? And that's always a constant challenge, right? Like the market keeps shifting. It's really easy to to be like encumbered on decisions that you, investments you've made. There's a lot of le- I, I understand Microsoft and their legacy, you know, more and more. So I think it's stuff like what I'm saying is like it's well, like you know, like if Microsoft could just reinvent Windows to make a better Windows, uh, if they wanted to, right? They have, you know, I think Windows 7 is still the most popular operating system in the world, and that's like 10 years old or something, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was your or what is your vision for Onel? What is how do you want it to be the change in the world, or why did you create it? Why don't you just keep on working at Columbia? <laughs>
0: Great question. I think a couple of things. So one is like we fundamentally felt that the people that were on the front lines um, trying to address these intractable problems, you know, and I say intractable problems, it's, it's like, you know, why can't we get past 80% coverage in, for child immunizations, right? It's like one out of five kids. And it, now that you, if you're, you know, as a, as a parent, I think that that number means is a lot more meaningful too. like personally, like your body chemistry changes. Like I get emotional and start crying in front of my team. And it always embarrasses me when I start talking about kids because it's just like your brain changes. So why are we missing one out of five kids? Like, how is that acceptable, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's just these intractable problems that ultimately I don't, and they're so complex and I'm not saying we can fix them on our own, but, but there's something we can do to, to move the needle on that. then that's a good life's work, right? So that's the fundamental reason why I think we do what we do. And it's also an incredible challenge intellectually to work on. So that's fundamentally what we're about is like, you know, how do we like figure out how to get where people are? How do we get services to those people? I think that's the thing that drives us the most, you know, we're also just a bunch of geeks, right? So it's like, part of this is just like, you know, can we build a, you know, the challenge of building a great engineering team, you know, uh, Harris happens to be in Kenya, which is also something I'm really proud of, but it's also something I think you should be expected. You know, you can have, um, you know, we just happen to build our team there and it's great. And just seeing kind of our team grow and how awesome. We have the contributors we have now across that team, you know, in general, across the team everywhere, but it's been really motivating, you know. So that's been a nice, I think, a nice bonus of our work. Yeah.
1: One of the things I found quite inspiring was I think it was your Pop Tech talk where you talk about how Africa is ready to code and America just needs to realize that.
0: That's for sure.
1: Do you have any guidance for other organizations that might be looking to leverage talent in Africa or from Africa, particularly coming, you know, from your professional career in the United States as you were? Um, what are some of the, the ins and outs of, you know, maybe some of the, the technical, the logistic bits of building a strong team in Kenya that can develop software for the continent?
0: I think it's just about building a strong team anywhere. So, you know, I spent five years there. I have Dixon, who's our co-founders, you know, based there. So it's like, whether it's in Kenya, whether it's in Illinois, whether it's in Zimbabwe, you know, you just have to invest in where you want to work and with the people you want to work with. So hmm. yeah. So I think trying to like, you know, just hire people from a distance randomly and not build that team and culture, yeah. you know, into that engineering culture, I think that's, would be the harder thing. So um, you can't just kind of pile it in. I think that would probably be the main thing. So
1: one of the things that you did um, is you invested the time, you know, as founder and as CEO to, to go to Kenya and spend time really getting to know the local talent. Uh, I imagine it's much harder if you, if you think you can sit in DC and have a world-class team in Africa, but you're not going to spend any time there. I imagine that would be much harder example.
0: Yeah. And I think the big thing is we we were lucky that we had great top talent. You know, Dixon and, you know, our CTO Peter, you know, are always going to be probably higher than most people we meet. So that's I think was really motivating for people that we were recruiting. And then I think we just never we just went into it saying we're just going to build a team and we didn't really have any other assumptions and treat it any differently to where we were working.
1: One of the things I respect about ONA is that it seems to stay on top of the latest technology trends and it puts some effort into disseminating those trends through your blog. How do you stay on top of those trends and how do you build that culture where you're disseminating that kind of learning?
0: That's a a great question. And our blog is, it's basically, that's also highlighted because of our a lack of talking about our other work, which is something we're, we're trying to work on. We've been pretty bad about, you know, uh, advertising. What we well, do. I'm a
1: techie, so I love the tech blogs.
0: Yeah, I know. It's great. So um, yeah, that's been, a, that's really been the leadership of our originally like our leaders in you know the tech leaders in our team, but then also now just the culture where, you know, we have like a site reliability team. So we're doing a lot of automation of like Kubernetes, you know, things like that. So it's like there's just the culture of we want to do automation, we want to do all the different best practices that software companies do. A lot of our early time we, we spent kind of prior prior to Ona I I spent working with ThoughtWorks. So learned a lot about how they operate, which was I think really formed our mental model of, of how software companies work. Because they're like the best at it in a lot of ways in terms of their processes. So I think like, I think, if like creating that culture where we want to invest in, you know, some of the newer tech and leverage it, uh, and that's a chance for people to learn is I think one of the reasons why people stay at State Adona and like to kind of, you know, because they can grow, learn, you know, expand their skills that way. So it's been a big part of our kind of internal tech culture, I think. Nice.
1: Yes, that makes sense. I, I guess from the outside looking in, I wonder, is, it, is there anything about your university connections like, or in the States as well that helps to, you know, sort of get the latest insights into the latest trends? Or is it very much the Kenyan team that's driving all of that?
0: No, I think just there's two, two sides, right? On the tech front, it's just, you know, we have that culture, our, you know, our, our leadership team. And the, the, when I say leadership team, the people are like the senior, <laughs> you know, senior geeks in the company are kind of pushing this agenda about, you know, what's, what's, what's coming, how we should leverage you know, I don't even know what Kubernetes is anymore. I'm so old, right? But how do we leverage things like that? So that's one one side. I think the other side is which is more of the university bit is what I I think my role in kind of my contribution to the space is you know being a strong technologist, but then also understanding kind of the more macro level issues uh, and trying to connect those dots. So like for me being at Columbia that was a unique opportunity was I really, I was working with some of the best nutritionists in the world, some of the best, you know, solar engineers, you know, some of the best economists. um, And I was able to help kind of connect those dots. You know, I think like innovation comes from a bunch of being kind of like a pebble between a bunch of boulders, you know, kind of getting, you know, rubbed around. And so just seeing kind of, so anyway, so that kind of, it doesn't happen in isolation. So that's, I think that is something culturally that has stuck with us from the university days. Um, and that's sort of where we're, we're always trying to seek sort of, you know, I kind of just, we're, we kind of like to be the tip of the spear in a way, which are basically, um, how can we use technology in ways that are maybe a little avant-garde, you know, maybe sort of like creating the market for So, Like one of the ideas is, you know, like we've been obsessed even since Columbia. Yeah, I was going to
1: ask for some examples of that.
0: So um, I think one of the core issues of like say that 20% of kids being missed is A, knowing where people live and, and ensuring we get to those people, right? And the thing that's happened over the last couple of years that's been amazing is, you know, availability of high resolution satellite imagery. And and also, um, so now we have access to high quality imagery of Kind of like the world now like Mapbox actually just released basically they bought from Digital Globe. I don't it depends on how old it is depending on place, but you know basically the top level quality um, where you can see like individual households or structures across the whole world. I think the only places not covered are Greenland and 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 Antarctica, but so that's okay for our needs. So now we can basically like you can zoom in on a map and you can see uh, building footprints, right? So you can see where people live. And advances in AI. So like, you know, uh, Bing, so Microsoft and Google AI. So Bing just released the building footprints for all the countries in Tanzania and Uganda, right?
1: Oh, awesome. That's amazing. I remember being in, in Dar in like 2009. And when you're in the white, in, in the area that's populated by white people in the neighborhood in Dar, all the streets had names, they're all labeled. And then the moment you cross into the next neighborhood, there weren't any streets. <laughs> so you can, you can imagine how much that's changed in the past 12 years.
0: Yeah, so yeah, so they, the core idea here is that now we can like you know there's projects like Grid Three, which is out of like Columbia, and where they're trying to, to use that kind of information and kind of census data to develop like kind of grided population maps, so you can use that to estimate populations and do like buffers around facilities to do things like micro planning. What is micro planning? So micro planning is if you're developing campaigns um, for like say an immunization, so it could be for polio, it could be for a COVID vaccine coming up. Um, you know, developing a plan to ensure equitable access to those um, services or you know or vaccines. So it's like, how do you get to? Do you go to health facilities? Do you go outreach to health posts? Do you go to to mobile brigades? You know, kind of different strategies for reaching people.
1: That makes sense. So anyone who is looking to get a vaccine out to the last twenty percent um, would use a tool like this to make sure that they have coverage for that last twenty percent.
0: The main thing here is that like we now sort of can now see where people live, right? So we can see the hamlets. So for polio. So they of Hamlet, busting, making sure every little cluster of people are, are found and visited. Um, and when we're doing service it's like we're using this for IRS indoor residual spraying for malaria or bed net distributions, we can make sure that every household in the community is visited. Right. So you have it's like a paint-by-number. You sort of have that that map to know where to go, and by by process that you sort of know where people. It, it's a really great starting point to know where that you aren't missing people, right? And we've never had that information before. So like, so big focus, yeah. You know, so big focus of our work that is building the tools, the mobile apps that allow us to download all those structures and then say, okay, visit everyone, collect that data monitor and whatnot. So it's been like super exciting kind of over the last couple of years.
1: For sure. And I think that integration of, of satellite technology with the geolocation piece is a, is a tool that's today highly underutilized in the aid sector. It's something that, as you mentioned, you know, the satellite imagery has only been out for a couple of years. Uh, but it does address that gap towards equal access, which is what the aid sector exists to address. So it's really cool to see you guys leading the space in that in that sector.
0: Sure. Absolutely.
1: All right, Matt, shall we da- switch over to the rapid fire questions? First question for you, Matt, um, is if you have any advice for other young professionals, folks who are looking to use technology for good based on your experience in your career.
0: Um, so two is like, you know, do whatever you can to get your foot in the door, and get that opportunity you know, kind of like I did with, with the Geek Core is one. Um, the second is, I think, be really thoughtful, um, especially in the beginning as you're trying to build your networks. So don't be brash like I was, you know, at some times. Like, you know, realize that the people that you maybe, be, the people that you're competing against are your, you know, have a lot more in common with you than you think. And it'll be collaborators the next day. And it's really those relationships that you develop will be the the thing that sustains you in the long term, right? It's It's something that, it's you can go up your ups and downs but you always know that there's amazing people across organizations you work with that are also equally committed um you know doing this kind of important work and for me that's always been like the camaraderie i have with you know people like you Ravina, people like Sean, others you know in this space y'all that i just have so much respect for really is what gets you through it you know so 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 really be careful about building those networks early and thoughtful i think is key nice
1: that's awesome to hear and i, I think it it reflects in your your ethos of of investing in in the humans and the relationships, you know, be you in Kenya or be you in Canada, uh, that there's something about the people in the picture that make it all worthwhile. Next question, Matt, is if you have any requests for donors or policymakers who might be listening to this podcast.
0: Yeah, I think like we really uh, need help with, we're working in a bit, especially in global health, especially if you're focusing on like the public health side, we're working in a bit of a failed market. So we really need help kind of in the market shaping um, this is actually something I have a lot of tremendous amount of respect for for John Jackson. He's really helping with this. We're trying to help him a little bit on it. but you know, like you know we don't have a price. We know down to the penny what it costs to to buy a vaccine like a measles vaccine for for a child, um but there's no cost for you know the delivery of getting that from port to the kid's arm. Um so if we had a fair market price saying, you know it's worth two dollars per kid vaccinated or every woman that gets you know full or full a and delivers at a clinic, she's worth 50 bucks. Let's cost that to the health system and build into that the cost for, for software um, that we could actually create a market that would allow us to say that, you know, this market's worth this and allows countries to budget for it and for donors to fund it um, and not just be kind of donor by donor, sort of, you know, there's randomly some money this year, there's randomly not the next year, you know. So shifting it to, the, to more of the OPEX side of things would be really, really helpful.
1: Yeah, agreed.
0: So we need help from donors to, to shift, to create that market.
1: Agreed. I think a lot of how the system has been structured historically is built around the delivery of of services. You know, the hour of my time I spend teaching a classroom at the change is technology, which we need. And the dynamics, the market are all so different uh, than a pure services model. Matt, is there a technology that you'd like to recommend that you've benefited from? Uh, maybe one that you have not built yourself?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, a main one that we benefited a ton from that's incredible, we use it in a lot of our projects is RapidPro or TextIt from Yoruka. Um, just an amazing kind of SMS. Now it's kind of chat workflows. Um, they've done an incredible job uh, with that as a tool. And it's really exciting to see it you know growing much beyond kind of just the, the development space. I think it's powering the Resist Spot, which is pretty cool. Yeah, <laughs> nice. so it's their, it's, that's a great, great tool.
1: Can you highlight a common implementation mistake or fix? People who are just starting out. Yeah,
0: I think like um, we've we've made this mistake ourselves. I think you know losing sight that flexibility is really key. You know, so really, um, you know, if you're going to err on the side of you know allowing people to adapt an app, like ODK is like the ultimate flexible tool. You know, like you know gluing that together with a spreadsheet or other different things that really I think you know don't poo poo you know having kind of like these sort of flexible tools that can be combined together. Um, I think it's really powerful. And I think I've lost sight of that sometimes with some of the stuff we've done at Ona. So I think getting back to our roots, more about sort of that core pieces that allow people to empower themselves and you can you not get out of the way, I think is key.
1: That makes sense. Would you like to offer a kudos or shout out to another mover or shaker in this field?
0: Sure. Um, one person that I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for is a, is a guy named Ime Asangazi. Hmm. From, he's the CEO of eHealth for Everyone uh, in Nigeria. And they're in, they're an incredible shop. They you know it's very similar to ODA, but It's kind of kind of, I call them like our Nigerian brothers from another mother. Uh, I met him in actually a, at a you know M Health uh, camp in Norway. He was a, one of the the NORAD kind of fellows. Um, anyway, he's created a great organization doing tons of uh, the data work for for the government in Nigeria and a lot of really large scale M Health implementations there.
1: Awesome, great to hear. And Nigeria is a tough country to work in. It's so big. It's so complex. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but the the people there too is like every time I get into meeting with Nigerians, I'm like the only one without a PhD.
1: <laughs> well, you better work on that,
0: Matt. No thanks.
1: <laughs> Last question for you, Matt is uh, if you if you want to recommend a book, a blog, or a podcast, either related to work or just for fun, from personal interest.
0: I've been getting into the um, lately. There's a guy, a professor named Scott Galloway um, from NYU. Um, he wrote the book around sort of like you know Facebook is like about the Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, and What's the other one? The big four and how like, you know, Apple's your, your, your loins and Facebook's your heart and something, you know, Google's your brain. <laughs> something like that. Anyway, so he's like a, he's like a tech strategist and he has a, he has a blog called the the Professor G Broadcast. He's an NYU teacher. And he also has one called, he has another one called Pivot with Sarah Swisher, who's that, you know, she was like the Wall Street Journal uh, journalist uh, that does a lot of, you know, interviews a lot of tech CEOs and stuff.
1: I need to find out. Why Facebook is the loin and Google's the brain.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's written a couple of good books. So it's a great kind of tech strategy book. He's he's a bit he's a bit melodramatic, but it's kind of a nice break from the day to day. So
1: I'll look it up. Do you have any music that you'd recommend? Okay, I'm kidding.
0: <laughs> music?
1: Music. Do you have any musical recommendations, Matt?
0: Uh, Justin Vernon is kind of my my go-to for the most part from bon Iver. A lot of Alt J lately is really good.
1: For those that are listening to this podcast who might want to get in touch with you or find out more about the work that you're doing, where should they go?
0: Uh, You can just go to our site, uh, ona.io, so ona.io and uh, head us up.
1: Thank you so much for your time, Matt. I really appreciate you being on the show. One of the things Matt kept on saying to me, both on the air and off, is there's real talent in Africa. You just need to go find it. I have so much respect for his approach. Not just to build a profitable technology startup, which is plenty hard on its own. And not just to do it with a growing engineering team based in Kenya, but also to stay on the cutting edge of technology and the change that technology can bring. The tip of the spear, as Matt puts it. If you'd like to learn more about Matt and his work, you can download our show notes at aidevolved.com. And if you have any feedback or suggestions for the show, please don't hesitate to send me a note on Twitter at aid evolved or via email at podcast at aid That's it for today. We'll see you next time.